I want to share a note before we begin this morning. Um, Charlie said it at the 8.30 service, and I think it bears repeating that the men's retreat will be presented in English. Now, when I look at that video, I see something completely different because I say the men of St. John's don't look like that. The closest thing we have is Steve Ruff. (laughs) And he joined the army. So there you have it. Um, Many of you know, uh, as I've taken on this new position at St. John's, I kind of have a foot in in two different worlds in ministry. Um, I'm also very much a part of the music ministry here at St. John's. And uh, this past week, as I was preparing for this morning's message, I was also very much part of the preparation uh, for tonight's uh, presentation, The Glory of Christmas. And uh, I just want to restate what has already been mentioned this morning, that uh, that is tonight. It is certainly uh, not to be missed. And one of the things that I love about being part of the choir and part of the music ministry is it is music that is presented from, from people whose hearts have been changed by Christ. So it's not just a concert. It's not just another opportunity to hear Christmas music. It's a testimony. And they're sharing the gospel through music. And so it's a good opportunity for you to, you know, put aside all of the other stresses and just take time to focus on uh, the glory of Christmas and what it's all about. We want to invite you to come at 7 o'clock tonight over in the sanctuary. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at the first chapter of John. Uh, Last week, Steve had us in the book of Genesis, uh, where we talked in particular about the creation of man, the fall of man, and how we are sinful by nature. And as I was thinking about today's message and listening to Steve speak last week, I, I wrote down in my notes what I thought was a great cliffhanger to today's message. He said that... Uh, Paradise was lost, and the only way to reverse the curse was through the birth of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to look at the first chapter of John where we see some of the same words from the book of Genesis as John refers back to the beginning of time, um, back to the, the beginning of time with the existence of the word Jesus even before time began. Now when we look at the four Gospels. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell stories of specific events in Jesus' life and ministry that are left out of the book of John. As these Gospels are referred to in messages and in Bible studies, uh, it's always interesting to compare them and how they differ from one another. However different, they're referred to as being synoptic Gospels. Gospels, which means that they're seen together. Jesus' life is the focus, and we read about his teachings and major life events. The Romans were Mark's target audience, and he focused telling more about what Jesus did than about what he said. Jesus drives out evil spirits. Jesus heals the paralytic, among many others. Jesus calms the storm. Matthew begins his gospel with a a genealogy of Jesus going back to Abraham because this was of importance to the Jews. And Luke focuses more on his research, opening in his first chapter with the words, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account. 
and he's targeting the audience of the Greeks. So John traces back to the book of Genesis in the beginning of time. In fact, in the opening verses of John, we see Jesus, the word in existence. I'm going to say it again, even before all of creation, before even time began. Because John is focusing here on the eternal Jesus, the significance of Jesus and the new covenant and the overall message that God became one of us so that we might become one with him. When we read John, we learn about the person of Jesus. And it's in John that we find the I am statements. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. 8.12, I am the light of the world. 10.9, I am the door. 15.1, I am the true vine. 10.11, I am the good shepherd. 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. And 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this morning we dive into this first chapter of John, this opening passage which is historically known as the prologue. And it's here that we learn about the coming of Jesus and exactly who the person of Jesus really is. So I want you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 1. And it's these first 18 verses that we're going to look at today, this this part of John that's referred to as the prologue. The first two verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus is the Word. Now this is in uh, reference to two parts to the Trinity. We see that God as the source of all of creation from the very beginning And Jesus, the Word, was with him from that point. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. This verse makes reference to what we read in Genesis, in the beginning. The Word existed even before the beginning, before even time began. And so during this time, the Jewish rabbis would speak of God in terms of the Word. They wouldn't say God, but they would say the Word of God. In the Greek The word logos is synonymous with word. It gives order and meaning to how the world began. John uses this terminology to bring these two schools of thought together to help the Jews and and the Greeks better understand who the word is. Verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was made. Nothing was made that has been made. It's a tongue twister. (laughs) Again, more reference to the beginning and God creating the world. There can be no misunderstanding. God is the creator of all things. And the word Jesus was with God and is God. Therefore, they're one and the same and they are eternal. There is a, a time when all of creation came into being, but they existed even before that time. And then we look at verses four and five. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Christ is the source of light and life. In the beginning, the Genesis beginning, God created life in a physical sense through Adam and Eve, through the animals, through the plant life. God created light to pierce through the darkness 
And here, in the beginning of the New Testament, we're finding yet another connection with light and life through Jesus. This too could be referenced to physical light and life, but with the writings of John, we'll find an even greater significance with a much deeper and a spiritual meaning. I want to unpack the word understood for just a moment. Understood it. It says in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Understood in, in some translations is comprehend. So the Greek verb translates to overcome. The idea that the light overcomes the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome the light. Light and darkness here are synonymous with good and evil. I think to get a clearer picture of this concept of overcoming the darkness, I, I think there's an eloquent example in the story of Jesus healing the blind man that we find later in John in chapter 9. This was a man who was born blind, and he was known by the people of the town as the man who just sat around and begged all the time. And so Jesus came along, and he spit in the dirt, and he made mud, and he put it in the, the blind man's eyes, and he sent him to the pool of so Siloam. And his blindness was healed. But the Pharisees had a problem with that. Because it was the Sabbath. How could a man of God ever do such a thing on a day like the Sabbath? Now we probably know that, that Jesus may have very well been trying to challenge the traditions, their traditions of the Sabbath. Because there actually was a specific, specific tasks that were not acceptable on the Sabbath. And one of them was something called kneading. And kneading was the making of clay. And you know how you made clay? By putting saliva and dirt together. So this may very well have been their way of trying to prove that Jesus was just another sinner and that none of this could possibly have been real. And in verse 25, the man looks straight in the eyes of the Pharisees and he says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind but now I see. So the Pharisees continue to insult him and insist that he's lying. And every time I read his response to them at this point, it's one of those places in Scripture where you read a sentence that jumps out at you because it almost sounds like you could hear somebody saying it today, like it's a conversation you're having or maybe you even thought of saying it to somebody before. He looks at the Pharisees and he says with an exclamation point in the Scripture, now isn't that remarkable? I love that. He says, you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And so they threw him out of the synagogue. Jesus comes along and he makes a profound statement about the state of true blindness of those who choose not to see who Jesus is. He says, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. You see, at one point in the story, even the Pharisees were a little divided in their um, opinion as to this man's healing. Jesus created a line of division. Some would accept him and some would reject him. Those who can let pride stand aside and see that Jesus is the light of the world would see clearly the purpose for him coming to earth. And those who claim to know better would become blind to the way, the truth, and the life. Part of the issue with the Pharisees is that they, they could see only life according to the Old Testament. The law was given to Moses. And so who could this Jesus possibly be? 
We go on to verse 6, 6 through 9. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John would come as a New Testament preacher, someone who understood everything about the Old Testament law and was coming to pave the way for Jesus to make a difference in the world. John was coming to prepare the world to accept Jesus as Savior. He started in the wilderness with his famous camel hair clothes and his uh, locust and wild honey diet. The wilderness was significant here because it was the place where, where um, the people were, where, uh, where God led his people to the promised land, where uh, God was revealed and where the Messiah would eventually, supposedly, appear. John the Baptist would be a witness to the light. His witness introduces the very idea of what a witness is and what a witness does. A witness is committed to their story. A witness is not taken lightly because he or she comes with an understanding of one telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It would take witnesses, you see, to convince the Old Testament school of thought to understand that light coming into a darkened world. It would take witnesses to be committed to spreading the news of a coming Messiah and bringing people to a new level of faith in the God of Moses. John the Baptist was paving the way for God to come to earth in the form of Jesus. So we move on to verse 10, 10 through 13. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. He was always part of this world. The world was and is his. But to this point, there was nothing to make a personal connection with God and his people and his creation. People needed to see, touch, and experience something in order to believe that it exists. As John already stated, this would be difficult for the world to comprehend. Some would reject the thought of God on earth, walking among his people, living life as a man who could perform miracles and transform lives through his teaching and preaching. But some would accept who he is and believe the unbelievable and become children of God. This is where John clarifies our adoption as children of God when we choose to accept him and live life according to his word and teachings. We become children of our heavenly father with all the rights and privileges of his kingdom when we choose the light over darkness. And then we come to verse 14. And this is kind of the pinnacle of the prologue. It says, The word became flesh, And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only. Who came from the father. 
full of grace and truth. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And this is the perfect example of how John deals differently with telling the story. One simple line makes an eternal difference. The word became flesh. It was God in human form. He was now an earthly man come to experience life as we know it. God was now Jesus of Nazareth. God became one of us so that we might become one with him. Again, John speaks in a language that both the Jews and the Greeks can understand. The Greeks used logos, as we said, for the word, for God, and separated him from their gods because they were Greek heroes. Logos brought order and reason. The Jews would have a hard time picturing that God of the Old Testament would take on the nature of a man and live here on earth. So the phrase, became flesh and dwelt among us, speaks to a much larger audience. One of the images that I can remember getting early on in my faith from a a speaker who was talking about this very moment in human history was that God stepped down from his throne to become one of us. God came near. The God of the Old Testament is now approachable. We can be in relationship with God through Jesus. Then there's that word dwelt, which we get from him dwelling among us. It relates also to the words tent or tabernacle. And when worship happened in the tabernacle of Israel, it was believed that God was with those in the tabernacle in his Shekinah glory. Shekinah was Hebrew for dwelling, as in the glory of God dwelt with them. During the time when Jesus was a man on earth, it's believed that he dwelt among the people in his Shekinah glory in a tabernacle of the flesh. His body was the place where God's glory would dwell. Then I got hung up a little bit on the word beheld. John, like John the Baptist, is a witness. Not only did he see his glory, but he beheld it. Doesn't that say more than just, I saw his glory? Eyewitnesses beheld his glory. What does that mean? How how can you compare beholding the glory of Jesus uh, in person? How could anybody one-up that? (laughs) Don't you just love that one-uppers? You could take your story and make it even better by something else that they did. Well, I challenge you to one-up beholding the glory of Jesus. So how is that word beheld used in the Bible? Well, it's a word that seems to remain consistent throughout. The translation is consistent from one gospel to the other. Here in examples, um, throughout the Bible, Isaiah, behold, a virgin shall conceive. Luke, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The word seems to say, hey, pay attention. This is pretty significant. What John and his witnesses were a part of was something that was significant. What they captured in their time with Jesus was not merely a mental photograph that they would never forget. It was an experience. The glory that was elusive in the Old Testament could now be witnessed in person, and it was something to behold. You see, up to this point, God's glory 
was seen in plagues and miracles, in a cloudy pillar, at Mount Sinai, in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Temple of Solomon. But now it's revealed in the presence of Jesus. God became one of us so that we might become one with him. And in this glory, we find two characteristics, grace and truth. His glory is full of grace and truth. Just like God brought, brought order in creation in the beginning, here he is presenting the word as something that is filled with grace and truth. A directive that we should follow in our lives of chaos and sin. A remedy for the condition of being lost in the darkness. God brings us grace and truth in the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus came as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And his reign is sovereign because of grace and truth. His word can be trusted because of grace and truth. And no other government, no other ruler, not Satan or his followers or any other man-made religion can offer what Jesus Christ, the Word, the incarnate Word, can offer full of grace and truth. Don't be fooled by false doctrine. Don't be swayed by false prophets. And don't accept any substitute in the world for the grace and the truth that comes with Jesus Christ. And in verse 15 we read, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's important to understand here that John the Baptist wants to make it clear that although he was born before Jesus in earthly form, Jesus was with God in the beginning. He said he existed even before time began. Jesus was before him and is therefore his superior. There was priority in birth order at this time. And it was significant to be born before someone. John the Baptist wanted people to know that although older than Jesus, he was not superior, but quite the contrary. And then we look at the last three verses of this chapter. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given to Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. There is an unending supply of grace in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here now in the concluding verses of this prologue, John shows a contrast between the law and grace. God revealed his law through Moses, who never actually saw God. And now God reveals his grace through his son, Jesus Christ, who says, anyone who has seen me has also seen my father. Now, at the beginning of the series, uh, Mike shared with you a couple weeks ago about Isaac Watts and the writing of Joy to the World in 1719. It was part of a collection of poems that were entitled The Psalms of David, imitated in the words of the New Testament. It wasn't written originally as a Christmas carol celebrating the birth of Jesus, but more of a celebration of the second coming. 
It was when Isaac Watts collaborated with George, Fre George Frederick Handel and Lowell Mason. Quick side note here, a little bit of music education from a music teacher. Lowell Mason is the founder of music education, public music education. Shout out to Lowell Mason. <laughs> it was when he collaborated with these two men that the song evolved into joy to the world, the Christmas carol that we sing today. And in that carol we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. It's been over 2,000 years since the birth of Christ. The presence of God on earth was short and he was ridiculed, he was scorned, he was tempted by Satan, he was beaten, he was tried, and he was crucified like a common criminal. God stepped down to earth in all of his glory as light in the darkness, and still the world did not recognize him. He was resurrected. And before returning to heaven, even one of his disciples needed to touch his wounds in order to believe that he was alive. And I think back of the blind man again. And he said, now that is remarkable. <laughs> you don't know where he comes from. And yet I can see. It's been over 2,000 years since the birth of Christ. He remains a light in the darkness of the world today. And yet still some don't see it. He's still changing lives today. And still some choose not to be changed. It's been over 2,000 years since the birth of Christ. And for one month, the world changes. Our houses take on a different look about them. Our schedules fill up. Our bank account dwindles faster than it does any other time of the year. We see relatives and we hear from relatives that we don't normally connect with. And sometimes the emotional and spiritual impact of the birth of Christ doesn't hit us until we're singing Silent Night with a lit candle in our hand on Christmas Eve. There was a story about a boy, Gabriel Curls, who was celebrating his sixth birthday. He was having a party with his friends, and to him the most important part was the cake. In our family, there's always a question, do you want to do cake or presents first? He wanted the cake, and so he dived into the cake, and he was missing that over in the corner was this large, odd-shaped wrapped present. And his friends couldn't take it anymore. They came over and they said, Gabriel, why don't you open that present? And so Gabriel ran over and ripped the paper off the present. It wasn't a bicycle or anything that you'd expect a six-year-old to get. It was his dad, Army Specialist Casey Hurls, who had come home on leave. You see, Gabriel and his father had been apart for seven months. And when Casey found out that his leave would line up with his son's birthday, he wanted to surprise him at his party. That's what God did for us at Christmas. He offered himself wrapped up in the form of a tiny baby and gave us himself. So the question this morning is, in the excitement and all the preparations, have you made room in your heart for Jesus? Do your plans and daily Schedule reflect time spent with the one who changed everything by coming to earth for you and me. Maybe the problem is that December is 
a time of spiritual high because you can't escape the excitement. It's easy to focus on Jesus at Christmas and Easter because you can't escape the real reason and the real purpose for celebrating those holidays. But the rest of the year, our lives demonstrate something quite different. God seems distant. The emptiness of the house reflects an emptiness in our heart. Even believers, people who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, can go through an entire season and leave no room for Jesus. Have you been so focused on the cake that you didn't notice the gift sitting in the corner waiting to be unwrapped? Maybe there's something going on in your life during the season that you've kept from Jesus. You've given him a small part, but the place that he has in your heart is confined, and certain areas of your life are not reflecting the love, grace, and truth of Jesus Christ. Is there a relationship that's struggling because pride has squeezed out grace and truth? Is there sin, guilt, shame, bitterness, anger that's squeezing out grace and truth? You see, a heart not fully given to Christ is a heart in darkness. You can be a good person and have a good heart and not have Jesus. In the closing passages of John, in chapter 20, he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I asked Emily to share a song this morning. It's called Be Born in Me. The song was written as Mary's song by Nicole Nordman. She wrote the words considering all that Mary might have been thinking about in her mind as she pondered carrying the Savior of the world inside of her. And although you can hear the words and music as Mary's voice, and you'll see the words on the screen. No offense, but I don't want you to sing. I want you to listen, and I want you to think about these words, and I want you to think about the great meaning that they carry for each and every one of us as we consider carrying the Messiah, the Savior of the world within us. Allow Jesus to take up residence in every area of your life by making room for him in your heart. See, the words can be your prayer today. Make my heart your Bethlehem. Be born in me. So I want to encourage you this morning to take this time as we close to meditate on what he has for you today. Where is your heart? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, there's no better time than now. Christmas is such a more joyful time when you have the joy of the Lord within you. And if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you've taken your focus off of Him, I want to encourage you to bring Him back today. Bring Him back into your relationships. Bring Him back into your marriage. Bring Him back into your everyday. Because God became one of us that we might become one with Him. This morning I want you to know that the altar is open. You can pray here. You can pray in your seats. But today, let your heart prepare him room.